Today, we gather to celebrate a truly extraordinary person, one who has left an indelible mark on each and every one of us in this room, Demetrius G. Papadimitriou, Dimitri to all of us. His accomplishments as a scholar, as a public intellectual, as a policy advisor, as an institution builder are too many to name. And it would take most of us several lifetimes to do what he did in one lifetime. But even with that, it may be his human side as a husband, father, grandfather, friend, colleague that we remember the most, despite the depth and breadth of his contributions to ideas, policies, and events around the world. His smile, his warmth, his very quirky sense of humor, his many questions that challenged your thinking and made you think better about things, which I hear in my head every day still, and probably will for the rest of my life. Um, and the many ways that he kept up his commitment to family, friends, and hundreds and maybe thousands of people that he kept in touch with regularly around the world. I want to welcome everyone who's with us in person today in Washington, DC, as well as everyone who is online with us virtually today. Um, this is a hybrid memorial and celebration of Dimitri's life. It is both locally rooted in Washington, D.C., where he lived, and we wanted to make sure and be able to gather people together here with his family and all people that knew him and loved him and learned from him that could be here in Washington today. But it's also virtual because Dimitri lived many places. Dimitri felt at home all over the world. With many of you who are with us virtually, you know that well, that he was at home in many places. and and had close relationships all over the world. And so we, we thought we would do this as a, as, a joint, as a joint effort. We especially want to recognize Dimitri's family, Margie McHugh, who's with us today, um, his daughter, Natalie, and her wife, Becca, his son, Nico, his wife, Sarah, and their son, Luca, Dimitri's grandchild. In Greece, Dimitri is survived by his older brother, Andreas, and his cousin, Alexis, and their families, and a broad family in Greece. Um, and there are also many of the McHughes with us today. He was very close to the, the McHugh family, and so many of them have been able to join us in person and virtually. Um, we'd also like to recognize the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, for joining us today. Thank you, Ali, for taking time. We really appreciate you being here. Um, I also want to recognize Lydia Soto-Harman, the chair of MPI's board, um, as well as Jim Ziegler and Bishop Nicholas DiMarzio and Mary McClymont, the former board chairs who are all here today in this room. In this fellowship we have together today, both in this room and the wider group of people that are with us in this, in this celebration of Dimitri's life, we wanna to hope to give tribute to an extraordinary person, the extraordinary person that Dimitri was, remember his many contributions, and also commit ourselves to carry on his work and his legacy. And we're gonna start with a short video that tells a small part of his story and his impact. Dimitri, the most common word that's been used in the Australian context since his passing has been that he was a giant. Dimitri was always looking around corners to the next policy issue that nobody else was looking at. I think his true legacy uh, when it comes to migration is being the person who has managed to cut through the emotion, the ideology, uh, the divides between left and right and actually come up with sensible policy solutions that move past 
some of those barriers that we've seen in migration policy making over recent decades. We've seen them in Europe, we've seen them in the US, we've seen them in Australia. They also had a unique way of combining uh, his analytical capacities, his visions, his concrete proposals on how to move forward with emotions. I mean, he was never emotional or, or, or excited in that way, but, but he, he never turned cold. We talk about migrants, about asylum seekers, about people in distress, and he always saw them as people. There were never flows or numbers or statistics. These were individuals. Uh, so he had that human perspective. He always understood uh, the perspectives of the different players and actors in this debate. And he was always able to bring people together with different perspectives or different focuses on the very complex um, discussions of immigration policy. He was always willing to have a cup of coffee or have a drink or uh, have dinner with uh, a whole range of different actors, many of whom would otherwise not have been communicating with each other. And in lots of ways, he was kind of a nerve center uh, for connecting all of those uh, disparate uh, sectors and disparate uh, feelings and um, into a, a framework uh, that then the rest of us could build on as, as we conducted our own work in, in policy or, or advocacy or research. I think that um, Dimitri's leadership and statesmanship in, in putting together these fundamental pillars of what enlightened immigration policies need to look like in the United States and in Europe is one of his long-lasting legacies. Uh, and I know he, he was consulted on a almost routine basis whenever there was a big change in policy in Canada. It was basically, you know, using old terminology, he was on speed dial. Uh, for those for those kinds of conversations. What I found amazing about the way he worked was, I think there were two or three things. One is he would listen, really listen and try and understand not just the problem they were articulating, but why they found it a problem. Because the solution is not always the straightforward solution to the problem, it's why someone has, has found that thing a problem. And then he would get the best thinking out of people. He would uh, listen, he would absorb, and then he would challenge. He became a regular guest in my sofa in my office. We always had coffee, never tea, always coffee. And uh, we talked about migration, he gave advice. Uh, we talked about the situation. And of course, he was instrumental in, in providing us with policy analysis, you know, numerous conferences, panels, roundtables, both to me and my collaborators, but also to a broader community in the Commission who relied very much on his personal experience and, of course, the people around him. He was the leader of bringing people together with different positions, different, different positions, yes, and different kind of thinking. He loved to have this persona as the tough guy who was really going to talk truth to power, uh, truth to everybody and so forth. Uh, he, he did kind of uh, uh, relish that persona as tough-minded, but at the same time, he's an enormously generous person. I mean, he shared his knowledge in, in a very generous uh, way, and that's, I think, also contributed to so many people really liked him. I mean, really, really liked him as a person, not only as you know, as someone who stood for knowledge and, and uh, analytical capacity, but, but he was a very kind human being. And that was 
the excellent competence Dimitri had. To bring people together, not only because he's a kind person, but also he worked very hard, very hard, and never stopping. And let me tell you that creating, sustaining, and expanding a world-class think tank, especially one dedicated to the vital and fractious issue of migration, uh, is not for the faint of heart. And Dimitri was certainly not faint of heart. I can't tell you how hard it was to keep up with Dimitri's 12 to 14 hour days and his absolutely bone-wearying travel schedule. And he used to tell me, and I'm sure he told other people at MPI, you must build your tail. You must always see your role as one of mentoring and growing people who are still learning or coming up behind you. Because it's only by building that generation behind you are you really building something worthwhile. I saw him as a, as a mentor. He's influenced not just the way that I think about migration, he's influenced the way that I think about government and policy making in the broad. I have no colleague or friend among them of the same spirit of Dimitri. So far he was unique. You can't have Dimitri twice. Thank you to everyone that took part in this video. Some of them are, are here, and Michelle, who put it together, really captures, captures the Dimitri we knew. We're going to hear from eight people that knew Dimitri well in different places, in different experiences with Dimitri, and I'm going to introduce them all at once to you because that way we can move seamlessly from one to the other um, and don't have to interrupt the flow of the conversation. So bear with me for a second here. Um, we're very pleased that they're joining us. Some will be online, will be joining us online. Others are here in the room with us. This is truly a global celebration of Dimitri's life. The first will be Sir Trevor Phillips, writer, broadcaster, and businessman, um, chairman of the Green Park Group, co-founder of Weber Phillips, and was the founding chair of the UK Equality and Human Rights Commission. And Trevor was also part of the, one of the original members of the Transatlantic Council on Migration, something that Dimitri started in 2008 to deal with major pressing critical issues around the world in a very high level format. Um, we'll hear then from Doris Meisner, senior fellow at, at MPI, director of MPI's US Immigration Policy Program. Doris, you all know, but she was commissioner of Immigration Naturalization Service twice, as well as had held many other senior positions. Uh, in government and outside of government. Uh, Ulrich Weinbrenner is Director of Migration, Refugees and Return Policy in the German Ministry of the Interior. He has uh, had a number of other senior positions in the Interior Ministry since 1992 when he first started, many of them, including almost all the senior positions around, around immigration and refugee issues and integration issues in the German Ministry of the Interior. And he's also a longstanding member of, member of the Transatlantic Council on Migration. Michael Fix is a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, uh, previously served as MPI's president, 
and he joined MPI in 2005 as co-director with Margie of the uh, National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, um, and he joined from the Urban Institute where he was the director of, of immigration studies. Gustavo Moar Betancourt is here with us. He is the CEO of Grupo, Grupo Atalaya, but formerly Mexico's Undersecretary of Migration, Population, and Religious Affairs. And prior to that, also Secretary General of uh, CISEN, Mexico's Intelligence Service, um, and someone who serves on MPI's board. Uh, Dr. Brenda Dan Messier, thank you for joining us today, is Senior Advisor to the Education Strategy Group and a faculty member at Johnson and Wales University. She was previously Commissioner of Higher Education for the Rhode Island State Government and also Assistant Secretary of Education for Career, Technical, and Adult Education. Malcolm Brown, who's with us here today, is the former Canadian Deputy Minister of Public Safety and of International Development. He's also on our board and he's held a number of other senior positions in the Canadian government, too long to list. Um, and he's a member of, of the MPI board, I think I said it already, and of great counsel to all of us at MPI. And finally, Frank Sherry is a longtime advocate for immigrants and refugees who currently serves as the Executive Director of America's Voice, which he founded. And prior to that, he served as Executive Director of the National Immigration Forum and of Centro Presente in Boston. Um, let's turn first to Sir Trevor Phillips. Trevor, you're joining us virtually, and, and let me turn it over to you. Good afternoon, and thank you, Andrew. Um, may I start by simply saying thank you to Margie, to the Papa Dimitriou family, and to MPI for giving me the opportunity to be part of this memorial. Uh, I feel privileged to be so much part of Dimitri's families that, I, that you thought to include me. And I'm so sorry that I can't be with you today, except at a distance. I also know that I should really be feeling deep sorrow today. In part, I do. But that sadness is dwarfed in my heart by gratitude that I had the chance to meet this man. And that when I look back, I've never experienced anything less than joy in his presence, never failed to be warmed by his chuckle, never felt anything but secure in his regard. And I don't want today to be any different. That said, some of today seems a little wrong. Round about this time most years, I get a call summoning me to a transatlantic council on migration. And it would normally be followed a little later by another call uh, telling me that I'd been assigned the duty of chairing the final session, at which I'd be expected to corral three days of debate and discussion and prepare the ground for Dimitri's magisterial summation of the proceedings. <laughs> preferably based entirely on the notes of what he himself had said during the previous sessions. <laughs> Usually he would remind me that that was uh, the function of the Brits. That's what we were useful for, talking, not much else. I've never been a more willing warm-up act for anybody. Today, we are going to miss his physical presence. But last year, I was introduced to the Jewish saying for moments like this, let his memory be a blessing. I don't know if what I was told is the official rabbinical interpretation, but one of my clever writer pals explained it to me like this. 
Some people, he said, leave an imprint on everyone they meet. When we've met those people, we emerge kinder, smarter, more generous for the encounter if we're lucky. The best of those people make everyone they encounter a better version of themselves. And after they're gone, we can still see their light reflected in those they knew and those who knew them. And which of us can say that knowing that Dimitri Papadimitriou did not make us better people? I speak today, I think, in three roles. First, as a disciple, not a word I use lightly. Second, as a friend. And lastly, as a brother. But in true Papa Dimitriou style, as he taught me, now I have the microphone, I'm not gonna specify how many points I want to make because what was usually advertised as a brief three observations would often mysteriously spiral into nine separate points when <laughs> I or Natalia or Megan or whoever it was had to review our notes. It feels to me like I knew Dimitri for most of my adult life, but actually that isn't true. We met less than 20 years ago in Athens at one of the predecessor meetings to the establishment of the Transatlantic Council. It took a day, just one day for me to realize that this warm dominant presence would, if I were lucky, become an important part of my life. And he did. First, he became my teacher. He taught me how to think more deeply, more relevantly. He also taught me a quality that not everyone will immediately associate with Dimitri, how to listen. It wasn't always obvious, but every now and then after a meeting, he would remind me of something that I had said that I didn't even notice myself or I'd forgotten that was either good or not so good, but really mattered. He paid attention. He also showed me how to inspire loyalty in those around me. Let's not pretend that Dimitri would have been the easiest person in the world to work for. I can't claim to have his gifts, but if I know anything about leadership, it is because in part that I learned the habits of kindness, of solicitousness, building up those who would carry on the mission from watching him. Second, I knew him as a friend. In spite of a rate of activity, as we've heard, that could have filled most people's lifetimes three times over, he never seemed far from the phone. And when we spoke, he was never not thinking of my life. And whether there were whether the times were happy or they were tough, he was always there to bolster me. And I know that I was just one of many who could say that. But when I was in his gaze, I felt as though I was the special one. When he and Margie came to stay with us in London for a few happy, memorable days, Helen and I almost immediately decided that we were going to move to America so that we could be friends with them. Margie, we're still on our way. <laughs> and finally, I hope that no one will think that I am claiming too much when I say that whilst none of us gets to choose our relatives, if I had to choose a big brother 
to watch over me, to guide me, to show me what's right. His name would have been Dimitri. Today, I'm sure that we will speak of him in some sense as no longer being with us. But as I said, that really isn't the case. He will live on in his work, we all know that. But more importantly than that, every time we listen to someone he taught, every time we embrace a person who was also his friend, and every time we recall his intelligence, his humor, his vision with another member of the great family he created, he'll be right there. He'll be teasing us, guiding us, and finding the answer to the question that no one has yet asked. Let his memory be a blessing to us all. Thank you. And I would now like to hand the floor to Doris Meissner. Good morning, friends and fellow travelers, Margie, Nicholas, Natalie, everybody that's gathered here. In recounting the origins of MPI, many of you have heard me say, I hired Dimitri. And it's true, I did. It was in the late 1980s, and I was at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where I had established an immigration program that was growing. I was able to persuade Dimitri to join me as a colleague and as a partner. Except for a period during which he became the Director of Immigration Policy and Research at the Labor Department, we then worked together until 1993, when I left and went, into the, went to the, into the Clinton administration at the INS. At that point, he took over running that immigration program, and that's when he truly grew it, with a vision, an ambition, an entrepreneurial skill, and additional staff talent that brought the work to a point that in 2001, it became an independent, self-standing new think tank, MPI, that it was my good fortune to return to after my time at INS. However, who we are and how we work was firmly established in those very early days at Carnegie. As it happened, IRCA, the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, had just been enacted. One day, Dimitri said to me, you know, we need to study what's happening with the implementation of legalization, which, of course, was its signature provision. And so we did. Now, here's what that looked like. We convened top INS executives, national heads of voluntary agencies, and immigrant community leaders to meet with senior officials of four countries that had administered legalization programs in order to discuss the lessons that they had learned from their implementation of legalization programs. We traveled to nine cities that represented the large share of the population eligible to legalize. We interviewed local INS leaders, legalization office staffs, community leaders, attorneys, assistance organization representatives, labor union leaders, state and local government officials, foreign consuls. We observed legalization interviews. We talked with applicants. We did an independent statistical analysis 
from census data of the numbers eligible for the program compared with the numbers that were applying for the program. We convened national leaders from relevant government agencies and NGOs to review and critique our findings and our draft report and give us feedback before finalizing it. The result was a report that was called the Legalization Countdown, a third quarter assessment. It put us on the map in the immigration world with research, analysis, and recommendations that for its time were unique, they were original, and they were quite unexpected in some regards. Some of the changes that we proposed were in fact adopted and they led to the program being perhaps slightly more successful than would otherwise have been the case. Now, even though by that time I'd been in the government in various senior policy positions for 13 years, it was Dimitri and working together on that report and subsequent work that we did together that taught me what true policy analysis is. It set the course for what MPI work would constitute and what everyone here who has worked for MPI has learned and does on a regular basis. It embodied what others have come to expect and value in our rigor, relevance, evidence-driven critical thinking and ideas. Now you will hear more about this evolution and journey from other speakers. For my part, I wanna fast forward and say, that as the terrible news of losing Dimitri raced through our networks, emails poured in. Invariably, they were addressed and they talked to the MPI family. It has really struck me then and since what a true characterization that is. For in addition to the high standards, excellence, the global outlook that Dimitri gave us, he also gave so many of us a professional home, and he built a worldwide community to which we all belong. It's a home and a community where we have been able to pursue our commitment to immigration work in collaboration with others who share similar motivations, making us all better for being able to be colleagues and to work together. It's been a precious, enduring gift that brings my and Dimitri's story full circle. Thank you, my dear colleague and dear friend for hiring me back this time to the house that you built. I am forever grateful. And now we're going to turn the screen over to Ulrich Feingrenner. Many thanks. Hello to everybody. I'm joining you from Brussels. There is a meeting of the ministers of the interior dealing with the migration crisis uh, from Ukraine. I'm hinting at that fact just to show you how, how, um, how relevant migration is and how relevant Dimitri's work in migration really is, was, and will always be. I'm very much honored to be asked to participate in this tribute to Dimitri's life. I personally only met him in 2016 uh, at a meeting of the TCM in um, Stockholm and I was just from the beginning very much impressed by everything what he does and the the way he works and I think Trevor Phillips so so um, perfectly described Dimitri's way of working and his uh, his personal 
um, uh, his personal um, uh, skills, which he used for this work. I think one can just put that together under one headline, Dimitri loved people. That's why he was so good in networking. That's why he was talking about and working about migration his whole life and um, endlessly and, and without, uh, without um, uh, um, uh, any, any time off. Um, I, after 2016, I, I regularly had contacts with him, all, although I only met him two or three times in person. He joined me in Berlin at a meeting that is some years ago. But um, uh, what, what impressed me is uh, uh, the, the personal contacts we had, especially the bilateral phone calls. And what uh, Trevor said, I can only underline it. Dimitri, he, he was very much able to, to put the best out of people. And um, he, he, in a way, was as well my mentor. Uh, and whenever, whenever I had a, a question, migration in the German uh, context, I was always sure that talking to Dimitri, giving him a phone call, uh, would be extremely helpful and extremely ex ex uh, inspiring. I was, I was really impressed when we met and when we called together how, how well he was informed about the situation in Europe and especially in Germany, how well he, he followed from, from his position in the United States, these European developments. Um, he has been in close relation and in touch with Rita, which we just saw a few minutes ago. And he even once um, uh, organized in Berlin a TCM meeting, uh, which was convened in the Reichstag building. And he talked to the former president these days, Christian Wolf, to have that organized. So that was the way Dimitri was very, his way of working uh, hands-on and, uh, and, and doing, uh, doing whatever was necessary uh, to bring people together uh, and to, to create what was, uh, I think, very, very cleverly uh, called the MPI family. And I am extremely uh, thankful to be a member of that family um, and uh, to, to benefit from, from what Dimitri did uh, and, um, and his, uh, his special skills. I think what his main, his main um, uh, uh, way of working was, uh, that was said already, was listening to people and showing them the interest uh, in their thinking and giving good advice uh, and to help them. Uh, do the, the the challenging jobs that we all have in the in the challenging field of migration. So I very much look back with gratitude to to meeting Dimitri uh, and to that he called me a friend. That was really something that uh, that was uh, that touched me very much. Although I might not be the only one, but at least uh, that always um, helped me and that gave give me a good uh, gave me a good feeling. And I'm very much um, looking forward. Uh, to, to the future developments of uh, TCM, be, because there will be this, uh, uh, the legacy of Dimitri's life and work will be further needed when it comes to, uh, to, to um, improve the situation of migrants and to find solutions for the, for the challenge in migration still uh, will, will uh, be for all of us. So many thanks again, many thanks to the uh, uh, to everyone who was uh, um, uh, involved in preparation, uh, in preparing this meeting. Uh, and uh, my condolences once again for, for Dimitri's family and his friends. Thank you. And now I, uh, I ask Michael Fix to continue, please.
There's a great irony today. There's a great irony that so many of the men in this audience put on a tie for the first time in two years <laughs> to celebrate the memory of a man who almost never wore a tie. <laughs> so thank you, Ulrich. Um, for all of us, this is obviously a difficult, uh, a sad, an important day. I can, in some ways, I think it's bookended in a way by the events of September 11, 2001, the day before MPI presciently opened its doors. And today when we're witnessing the largest refugee flow in memory. But I think both stand in a way as testimonies to the enduring importance of being, of having a world-class think tank that's dedicated to the issue of migration. It's an institution, MPI, that was very much Dimitri's life and it is very much his legacy. Over the past 30 years, Dimitri and I have known each other in many ways. We've known each other as a blood competitor. We knew each other, he was my boss. He was my colleague. I was his successor. As ex-presidents, we shared a small office with lots of Xerox paper. <laughs> and I knew him crucially as a, as a friend. And I thought what I would do today is just offer a few personal observations about how MPI has evolved in the time that I've been there, the 15 years or so that I've been there, and some of the ways its strengths remain unchanged and firmly in line with Dimitri and Kathleen's vision over the years. Let me talk. I've been thinking recently in the wake of Dimitri's um, death about the fact that he didn't create just one institution. He really created a cluster of institutions. He created MPI Europe, one of the preeminent migration think tanks in Europe. He created the Transatlantic Council. He created the immigration source, the web-based immigration source and its uh, progeny, including the Migration Data Hub. These all started with a Bang. They were written up by Jason DeParle, who is here today, nominated for a Webby, which is an Oscar for techies. And uh, they've developed a huge and dedicated following through the years. And he was instrumental in creating the National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, to which I'll return in a few minutes. But MPI hasn't just involved by expanding its spatial, its policy, and its communication reach, it's become what one very influential Silicon Valley-based foundation executive has called data central in the immigration debates in the United States and worldwide. And we've seen other ways that Dimitri was critical in engineering uh, in, in engineering what I think uh, important evolving changes at the Institute. And here what I would like to say, I think it's safe to say 
that we've made at MPI a largely seamless transition from a founders to a new generation of leadership with Andrew Seeley. Uh, this is an achievement that many institutions fail to make and that cannot be taken lightly. And again, I think we can look to the wisdom of Dimitri, who after so many years of grinding hard work, took it on himself to step away at a moment of great institutional strength. But let me turn now to a few ways that MPI remains unchanged and very much consistent with, MP with, with Dimitri's vision. We're still nimble. Three years ago, our presence in the now critical policy regions of Central and South America was pretty much minimal. Now, thanks to Dimitri's initial guidance and Andrew's great entrepreneurship, we're essential. Our policy influence has only grown last week's far-reaching asylum rule is a case in point, reflecting Doris Meisner's writing and thinking, but really tracing back to MPI's work through the years in humanitarian policy and admissions. Our commitment to communicating broadly and quickly is also an enduring element of MPI's uh, strengths, but it's been there from the start. Despite, as we all know, Dimitri's somewhat feigned technological illiteracy, He committed MPI to the web before other things thinks did so or even thought to do so. And then there's MPI's abiding commitment to comparative work. Again, this was bred to Dimitri's bone. It might have been pretty revolutionary two or three decades ago, but it's now widely accepted. And finally, I want to talk about MPI's unbending view that the success of nation's immigration policies will be determined and they will be judged by the success of immigrants and their families and hence by their immigrant integration policies. Dimitri and Margie McHugh put this premise at the center of the Institute's mission and its evolution. Over the years, it's forced us to ask hard questions about populations, whose talents are being wasted. Brenda Dan Messier may talk about this. It's forced us to ask hard questions about immigrants facing persisting inequality, and it's forced us to ask tough questions about institutions that have often made immigrant integration a policy stepchild and that have largely overlooked immigrants' needs and claims. But at the same time, true to Dimitri's spirit. The immigrant integration program has also mapped and forged new networks among governments and NGOs. It's lifted up concrete, workable innovations and solutions within civil society, and it's offered fresh data on immigrant populations, progress and challenges nationwide and worldwide from our pioneering work on dreamers and DACA recipients to English language learners to African immigrants and to two-generation families in mixed status. All this, I think, I know, was squarely and presciently 
within the vision and stands is the legacy of my dear friend, Dimitri Papa Dimitrio. So with that, let me turn to Gustavo Moa. Gustavo's a long time central figure in Mexico-US relations. He's been a great, great friend of MPI and of Dimitri and of Margie's. Thank you. Muy buenas tardes. Good afternoon to all. Let me first of all thank Margie and Andrew for giving me this opportunity to make some brief comments about my dear friend, Dimitri. I flew yesterday from Mexico City and uh, going uh, through Dulles Airport and coming into the city, I got to begin to remember all the moments that I live with him since we started to try to approach Mexico and the US to look at the migration issue as what we defined as a shared responsibility. Because we thought then, and I think it's still valid, that there's such an intense relationship between Mexico and the US in trade and investment, in drug trafficking and on migration, the only way to manage it better is to work together. And in those days, it was a very difficult issue because in the US, immigration policy was, and I think it still continues to be, a national issue, a unilateral decision made by the Congress, basically, and the executive in turn, but it's basically conceived as something that has to be decided only by the US people. But when we look a little bit deeper with a neighbor, which is the second trading partner except from Canada, which is the first, in which billions of dollars cross the border each day. And you have a Mexican-American community of about 30, 35 million people, plus an undocumented population still waiting to have a chance to become legal of millions of people. And remittances from these Mexicans to their hometowns last year reached $47 billion. It's a key component of immigration policy in the US in its way it impacts Mexico. So taking that into account, the Mexican government decided to open an office for the first time ever at the Mexican embassy. And I was lucky to be appointed to open that office. So it was only me. And the first advice that I received was, you should meet a guy called Dimitriu Papadimitriu. <laughs> so I went there to look for him in his office. And I reached this very small office, really minimum, full of stacks of papers. <laughs> and then I see this guy with no jacket, no tie. I was dressed with jackets and tie. And I stand there in the door and he was writing with these yellow block papers. And he had a lot of pens, <laughs> black, blue, yellow, red. And he changed colors each paragraph. So I said, well, probably the red means it's important, the blue, not that important, yellow, it's a note. So I stand there and he didn't look at me until I knocked the door. He turned and said, yes, Dr. Papa Dimitri, yes. I'm Gustavo from the Mexican Embassy. Gustavo, come on, come on, come on. And he took me for lunch. And since that moment, we started what become to be a long life friendship. He was not only my mentor in Washington, he became the godfather of my younger son. 
He flew to Mexico. He went to the baptism. And the priest who didn't know Dimitri, who's the godfather? So Dimitri went there. And he gave my son to him. I said, well, you carry while I do all these things. And at the end of the ceremony, Dimitri turned to the people, the guests, raised my son and said, like the Lion King, he is that one. <laughs> so so uh, really, uh, I feel deeply, I have cried, honestly, when I heard about his departure. But at the same time, life goes on. And here are his kids and his grandkids. And of course, Margie, my dear, dear friend. So yes, I cry, I feel sorrow, but at the same time, I realize he had a plentiful, beautiful life with friends like all of us, with his family, with his inheritance of MPI being the most solid institution, institution on migration and refugee, frankly speaking, in the world with Andrew taking the lead in an extraordinary way, my friend, and I really play, pay my respects to you because it was not easy to succeed Dimitri. And he has done it in a wonderful way. So we have a full leadership with Andrew. So just to end with a note that uh, shows how policy and politics sometimes start in very strange coincidental way. When uh, President Fox in Mexico took office, which probably some of you know, that it meant a very fundamental political change of democracy in Mexico, because it was the first time after 70 years of a one party controlling the presidency, Fox as an opposition president won. And one of his key messages during his campaign was to try to reach a migration agreement with the US because he had traveled a lot visiting the Mexicans in, the, in different cities in the US, and he realized the importance of them for the Mexican economy, for the US economy, for the labor market. So he decided to try to reach a deal. So in his first visit to Washington, he proposed to President Bush then, why don't we start kind of a task force to begin to see what can we do with this issue? Because what we have now, it's not working for both sides. So I, it was appointed to the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, and the Secretary of Foreign Affairs appointed me with a couple of colleagues to begin to discuss how can we reach an agreement on this. So we agreed to meet. It had to be very confidential, almost secret. So we agreed to meet in El Paso, Texas. And when I received the memo where, where should I meet them, I was a little bit surprised because it was in a motel in a highway. So I took the taxi and I said to the taxi driver, well, this is where we want to go. And he turned to me, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not a very nice neighborhood. Well, let's go. So we went there and yes, there was a motel. So we went to the manager say, is there here a guy called Steve and another guy? Yeah, the Americans. Yeah, 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 yeah. They are in room 12. So we went to room 12, knocked the door, and here they are, Dimitri Papadimitri, with shorts <laughs> and a Hawaiian shirt. Me, I was dressed not like this, with jacket, I mean, with tie, black tie. I mean, I was working with my portfolio. So this guy, come on, let's have some beers. Okay. And some kind of uh, snacks. 
and he took out his famous yellow block paper. So, okay, okay, let's work. Let's begin to set the principles of this conversation. So he began and we began to talk and we stay for quite a long time, drinking beer, but working. And he drafted what later was sent to the government. And then here, I also would like to present my fullest respect to Doris Meister, because I had the privilege of meeting her when she was commissioner. And since the first day we went to visit her, once we left her office, we said, we are very lucky of having somebody that really understand policy and politics on migration at the head of the INS. So she pushed the issue within the ranks of the INS who were not accustomed to talk to the Mexicans, the Border Patrol, for example, and we achieved to have agreements to deal in a more humane way with people trying to cross the border from the Mexican side. And since then, we started to work on the, uh, the really deep solution until 9-11 happened. So we were in the official visit of the president of Mexico to the White House on September the 7th. And we left and the agreement was, let's ask our teams to work strongly to see if in December we can sign a kind of a letter of understanding. And then the administration will be moving in Congress to see what type of partial solution, but something that can give Mexico a good idea, a good kind of move into the legalization of our undocumented population. That was September 7th. So I have been working here for two weeks. So I went to Mexico. My boss then asked me, then you should stay. And I asked him, please give me a break. I have a young boy. I will come back in a moment. And until I was wake up on September 11, watching the TV. And we couldn't come back until November the 20th. And I remember, Doris, that you received us with the State Department in a very big meeting room. And in the moment I went in, I realized how much the world had changed. Because in the US side, it was a huge line of people. In the Mexican side, it was only four of us, all of them dressed in black with a black tie. I fortunately was sensitive to bring also a black tie. So we sit down and then Doris told us, well, we have immigration here as our main topic. Let's put it aside and let's bring security. And let's talk about the border from a point of view of national security. And the world changed and the migration relation changed until today. So I think that Dimitri, who was then behind us thinking how to reconcile what he knew deeply about the US approaching this issue, and he knew Mexicans and Mexico, how to try to get together. And thanks to him, we developed the concept of the shared responsibility. And he went to Mexico, and he talked clear and loudly to our bosses to say, you're not going to get this for free. You need to accept the responsibility. After all, Mexicans live in Mexico. To come to the US is a proof of the failure of you to keep your people working here. So you have to accept that responsibility and we need to have a long-term view in order to achieve one day that these flows are only voluntary, but not as involuntary as they were in those years. Today, we still face a flow of Mexicans trying to cross the border 
without papers. During the COVID pandemic, of course, the flow dropped drastically, but now it has begun to recover again. And we are now in the hundreds of thousands, or, or at least 100,000, 200,000 arrests in the, the border. So we still have these flows of people. So as I learned from Doris and Dimitri, you don't solve this problem, you manage it better. So I hope we find a way to manage it better. So let me end by saying, first of all, Margie, thank you for allowing me to give these words. Thank you, Andrew, also. Thanks to all for being here. And let's celebrate, let's celebrate Armon Dimitri's life, my dear friend and my compadre. Thank you very much. Good morning, good afternoon to Margie, Nico, Sarah, Natalie, Becca, Luca, and all of Margie and Dimitri's extended family and friends. I'm truly sorry to be here today. In my short time, I want to share my professional and personal re reflections of my colleague and our beloved friend, Dimitri. Dimitri and I both worked for the federal government at one point in our careers and knew the promise and limitations of working for and with governments to advance immigrant integration. We shared a common belief that government had an important role to play in ensuring successful immigrant integration in partnership with civil societies, employers, and other major institutions. Dimitri knew that if immigrant integration was going to be effective, the work had to be grounded in systems in order to design and implement comprehensive policies, programs, and services. Dimitri made the case that successful integration programs would require increased investments in education and workforce training opportunities. So while Dimitri was a scholar and a researcher, he was also a policy wonk and thought deeply about the full range of services immigrants needed in order to successfully integrate. What so impressed me when I talked with Dimitri was his deep understanding of the need for all types of programs that would support individuals and their families. He talked about expanding adult education programs that included language acquisition for individuals who had limited education all the way to programs tailored for highly skilled immigrants. He talked about replicating and expanding effective, comprehensive models for immigrant integration, such as the Welcome Back Centers, a national program I directed in Rhode Island that recognized the education and skills individuals brought to this country in order to build their careers on their strengths and assets. Dimitri always stressed the need for workforce training programs to be grounded in national and regional labor market data in order to ensure that immigrants had access to jobs that provided family sustaining wages and allowed them to fully participate in our economy. Dimitri shared his expertise broadly, whether folks asked for his advice or not. <laughs> Those that took advantage of his intellect and knowledge benefited enormously from his insights and those that didn't were left behind. As, other, as others have shared, Dimitri facilitated dialogues between the US and colleagues across the Atlantic. He knew that while our contexts were different, we could learn so much from each other by sharing our expertise and our experiences. I had the privilege of participating in many of those discussions in the US and abroad. That was the power of Dimitri. 
Because of his scholarship, his intellect, and his force of personality, he advanced immigrant integration efforts around the world. But in the few minutes remaining, I also want to share my thoughts about our beloved friend, down-to-earth, foul-mouthed, witty, and always opinionated. One of the greatest joys for us moving to DC was becoming good friends with Margie and Dimitri. I met Dimitri when I participated in an MPI event and was asked at the last minute to pitch it for my former boss, Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan. After I presented Arnie's remarks, Dimitri graciously thanked me, said we were neighbors, and he would invite us over for dinner because he loved to cook. I shared with him that my husband, Dan, was the cook in our family. And then from then on, Maji and I were the beneficiaries when the two cooks, a bit competitive with each other, <laughs> prepared us many delicious meals. Not only did we share great meals together, we traveled together. And when the pandemic hit, hit we kept in touch via Zoom regularly. What always stood out for me when we were together with Dimitri and Margie was, of course, the delicious meals and the stimulating conversations we had. But really, we loved to do when we were together was not only talk about current events and migration policy, but we wanted to talk about the people we loved. Margie, I know you know this, but I want all to know that Dimitri loved you so much. He always referred to you as the love of his life. He was so proud of your work. He would brag about you and all your contributions to the field, your keen ability to raise funds for your work and the partnerships you developed and nurtured. He loved you, respected you, and admired you so much. He treasured your life together. And I know that is true for you as well. He also loved to share stories about his children and their spouses and his wonderful grandson, Luca. While these past two years meant we were only together via Zoom, we yearned for the time when we could come together again, sharing a meal and sharing stories of our loved ones. We will continue to be together with you, Margie, sharing meals and traveling, and we will always carry Dimitri in our hearts. We love you and miss you, Dimitri, and always will. While we will miss your insightful and powerful voice and your renowned immigration scholarship, we will truly miss your friendship. It meant the world to us, and we are grateful for the time we had together to know you and love you. And now it Next up is Malcolm Brown, MPI board member and former Canadian Deputy Minister of Public Safety. A huh. um, couple of comments to begin. Um, batting seventh of eighth means everything you wanted to say has been said already. Um, but I'm still going to stick to my remark because it takes me some people have said 15 minutes to inhale and i promised lisa wherever she is um that i'd stick to time um i'll also say that um i michael kind of took my line about ties but but i'll outdo it it's not two years i was relatively well known in the canadian government before i retired three years ago for never wearing a tie except for cabinet meetings, because you kind of had to, because the prime minister was there. Um, it was deemed a sign of respect. Um, and don't get me started. Um, and uh, I'd say I was retired. Um, 
And so it's been many years since I've worn a tie and I thought it was like Michael appropriate um, to wear a tie in honor of Dimitri who almost never wore a tie. So let me get started because I'm gonna blow the time here. Um, and if I don't stick to it, we'll be here for hours. So I first met Dimitri more than 15 years ago at one of his famous pre-event dinners, which I think we've all, everyone in this room has been part of one of those or many of them at the Wilson Center. Um, it was the launch, I believe, of the Task Force on Immigration and America's Future. Andrew was there, that's where I first met Andrew. That's where I first met Doris. She's wondering why this Canadian was part of this task force as an observer. Um, and um, I think I know why I was there in some ways, because when I first met, I could see Dimitri trying to place me in his mental Rolodex. And yes, it was a Rolodex, because as has already been mentioned, Dimitri was definitely an analog guy. He was not digital. Um, I contest um, Michael's point about how famed that uh, his uh, technological ability was. I was on the receiving end of, of too many outbursts about it. And while I'm uh, sure I didn't make it to the first rank of his Rolodex, because Dimitri's Rolodex was unbelievable, I like to flatter myself I made it, for some reason, I made it somewhere in there. And on my good days, I hope I was in the second rank. But regardless, whether I wanted to or not, and I think this has happened to all of us, uh, I became part of Dimitri's network. And that's a network with a capital N. Um, and before too long, as again, as I think we can all attest, almost imperceptibly, Dimitri became a source of personal and professional advice. He's always generous and available, whether he's in DC, Europe, Latin America, or some other distant location, providing advice to the most senior levels of government, NGOs, or academic institutions. And I want to give you a small specific example. Uh, to describe his influence on Canadian thinking about supporting the Syrian refugees in the countries surrounding the conflict zone in 2015. At that time, uh, and in my role as the Deputy Minister of International Development, I reached out to Dimitri for advice and counsel about working with like-minded countries to make a massive investment in the region to support receiving countries carrying the huge burden of millions of ref Syrian refugees. With Dimitri's support, we pulled together a proposal that would have leveraged billions of dollars of assistance from Canada, Europe, the Gulf states, and others. In the end, the initiative was not led by Canada, and that's a story for another time. But Dimitri's advice and guidance was central in shaping the idea and in giving it credibility at senior levels in Canada. But the point is, as was typical, no one outside a tiny circle of people knew of his impact. And this was simply Dimitri being Dimitri, shaping, influencing, leading, putting his network into action. Dimitri's leadership and vision, we've already talked about, uh, had people talk about this afternoon, this morning, uh, was also demonstrated in the Transatlantic Council on Migration. As has been mentioned, it was invented by him, I would argue, virtually out of whole cloth, <laughs> um, feeding off his relentless drive the TCM became a unique forum where senior migration officials from Europe, the Americas, and Australia gathered to have frank exchanges with the challenges, both policy and operational, that they face. I think this forum is a unique accomplishment, and in my view, without precedent. I've worked in a lot of policy areas with, uh, in an international context, and 
it's without precedent for senior practitioners uh, to have these kinds of exchanges. And it's an enormous asset, enormous and valued asset. So let me turn for a minute to talk about Dimitri's impact in Canada. When colleagues and friends uh, in Canada were informed of Dimitri's, Dimitri's sudden passing, there was obviously the reactions you'd expect, shock, sadness, the endless, and I mean endless, fond memories recalled. But across a wide spectrum, very wide spectrum, people involved in the migration community in Canada who knew Dimitri, there was universal consensus about his huge impact. This started, I think, with his foundational role in the International Metropolis Project and his work with Mayor Bernstein more than 25 years ago and others more than 25 years ago. And from then after, he was frequently engaged with Canada's immigration leadership and the working staff in Ottawa, at the embassy here in DC, and with the academic and practitioner community throughout the country. Now, this will not surprise anyone. This was not passive engagement, of course. Well, Dimitri was a fan of Canada's immigration, refugee and settlement policies. He was not uncritical. And he'd do this in typical Dimitri fashion, a breathtaking scope of analysis, generously open with his time, funny, sometimes cranky, slightly, and always, and again, this has been mentioned already, hugs of greetings and farewell. And you also knew you had to pay attention to what he was saying. He regularly came to Ottawa to provide honest but constructive criticism of Canadian policies, but also to encourage Canada to tell its story, as he called it, about immigration and migration more honestly. He felt strongly that the Canadian experience was most influential in both the good and the bad, and there's plenty of bad, were shared with international colleagues, the lessons learned, not just the successes. I'm afraid we in Canada still don't listen to that advice from Dimitri closely enough. And it's one of his legacies to keep pushing us in that direction. I'd like to make one final comment. In many of my conversations with Dimitri, I was always struck by the importance he attached to family. We talked about his family a lot. And of course, no discussion could end without him wanting to know about my girls, as he called them. He was especially proud of his children and Margie. And that was very clear when we'd have a quiet dinner and just talk about the things that mattered most to him and that was family. So many people in Canada believe Dimitri made a profound contribution to migration policy across the globe and in Canada itself, and that his loss cannot be replaced. I'm afraid I agree. I'll miss him very much. And I want to thank you. And now I'll turn to Frank Sherry, the founder of the executive and executive director of America's Voice. Hello. I fell for Dimitri Papa Dimitrio before I ever met him. It was 1990. I had just moved to DC from Boston to work as an immigrant advocate. And I stumbled across this paper by an academic whose name I couldn't pronounce, much less spell. This was a Department of Labor document, but this was no ordinary government document. It was a tour de force. It was startling to me. I'm so used to reading things where the conclusion is honest and most of the facts are cherry picked that it just struck me as intellectually rigorous, 
unflinching, nuanced. It wasn't arguing for a point of view, it was trying to enlighten the audience. I was, I was so taken with this paper authored by Dimitri that on the speaking circuit, and I used to get invitations to speak at statewide conferences around the country, I would cite passages from this paper. I cited them so frequently, I knew them by heart. And there I was in Texas, speaking at a conference and reciting a passage from this paper by a guy named Demetrius something or other. And I couldn't help but notice that in the back row, there was this guy with a big smile on his face and he was a big guy and he had a huge presence. And only afterwards did I get introduced to the author of that paper. <laughs> and uh, so began uh, the unlikely bromance of a, an academic and, a, and an advocate. Of course, we know Dimitri had exacting standards and if he considered you a friend, he held them, held you to them as well. <laughs> the first time I was on a panel with Dimitri was before a throng of foundation representatives in New York. And in response to a question about why does the political class always obsess about the border? And I said, yeah, it's a real problem. And, and maybe we need to see if we can pivot to talking more about root causes as if, as if it was an either or proposition. And you know, a lot of people were shaking and nodding their heads going, well, that sounds really intelligent. And Dimitri was asked for his response. He was sitting right next to me and he intoned rather slowly, I think we need to be more serious. <laughs> and we need to refrain from vacuous sound bites. <laughs> well, let's just say it was a it was a punch in the stomach I deserved and I needed, and I've never forgotten the lesson from it either. <laughs> so you can imagine how delighted I was when a few years later, Dimitri called and invited me to be part of this high-level Mexico-US commission, where he was going to bring together former government officials and thinkers and researchers. And yeah, he was going to invite a few token advocates like me to participate in an effort to really reframe Mexican migration. The premise was that migration from Mexico to the United States was ordinary and organic, and that if both governments could move away from the dialogue of the deaf, as he used to call it, to cooperate, we could fashion a grand bargain where instead of ineffectively repressing migration, we could intelligently regulated. I thought, man, count me in. And so we, we began our deliberations. We were probably a year in, and there was a regularly scheduled meeting of this commission in Mexico City on a January weekend in 2001. Change was in the air. Bush and Fox had just been elected, as Gustavo said, a fellow commission member, I might add. Uh, uh, you know, the first democratically legitimate Mexican president and Bush was this pro-immigration conservative, maybe something could, could happen. 
Now, Dimitri wasn't there. Uh, we needed him there because on Saturday morning, the weekend was going to be spent reviewing a 60-page draft of a paper that he had written for the weekend that was going deep analytically into Mexican migration and what, what might be done about it. But he wanted to make sure we understood all of the different disciplines. Anyway, he wasn't there because he had been called, summoned by then Governor Tom Vilsack of Iowa, who had touched off a national firestorm by having the temerities to suggest that his aging state could benefit from new immigrants. <clears throat> anyway, Dimitri wasn't there, but who showed up at our Friday night welcome dinner? But uh, Jorge Castaneda, another commission member who had stepped down because he had just been appointed by Fox to be his foreign minister. And as we ate dessert or whatever, Jorge was saying, hey, it looks like Bush and Fox are gonna get together in Guanajuato in mid-February. And I just couldn't contain myself. I said, Jorge, shouldn't this commission come up with like a five or six page paper of really potent recommendations that could serve as the basis for your discussions? And Castaneda said, yeah, that would be terrific. And Andres Rosenthal, Ambassador Rosenthal was presiding. He said, all right, well, we'll work on it this weekend. And he said, Gustavo, Yes, the same Gustavo Moar. And Frank, you guys stay up all night and draft that paper. <laughs> well, we were game, fueled by coffee. Uh, in fact, I remember at 4 a.m. it was Gustavo who said, a, a grand bargain anchored in shared responsibility. And we were just like, oh my God, I don't know if it was 4 a.m. or it was really brilliant, but we loved it. <laughs> Anyway, at 9 a.m. the next morning on Saturday, Gustavo and I sleeplessly stumbled into the full commission meeting only to encounter a rather pissed off Dimitri. <laughs> you know, he had his arms folded, frown on his face, and the, the most hostile looks were directed at me. Oh boy. So I said, listen, Dimitri, I know you, you drafted this amazing paper and we need that analytical framework, but we also need recommendations that politicians can actually, you know, read. He said, well, don't describe what you're working on as a summary of my paper. <laughs> okay. And it strikes me that what you're doing is being opportunistic. Is that like some insult in academic world? Because like, <laughs> I'm, yeah, first of all, I'm short-tempered because I haven't had an ounce of sleep. And I pushed back. I said, opportunistic? Guilty as charged. I said, and how about you? Didn't you build this commission for a moment just like this? Seems to me we all would be better off if we all got on board being opportunistic. The smoke cleared, he got on board, he got back in charge, and within three days, four days, we rolled out two papers, the Gustavo and Frank document of five pages in length, and the 30-page document, an edited version of Dimitri's opus, and they, 
were hand in glove and we rolled them out in simultaneous press conferences in Mexico City and Washington, D.C. It did set the table and a few days later, the Bush-Fox migration negotiations were announced. You know, we made, uh, we made some magic together on that commission and then I think we were on our way to making history, but uh, history had other ideas. And after nine months of incredible momentum with Gustavo as the chief negotiator and Bush and Fox having a handshake on September 5th during Bush's, during the Fox uh, uh, state visit, 9-11 happened and the uh, grand bargain was not to be. Sure, many of the ideas that um, were hatched by that commission became the basis of the immigration reform debate in America for the next 15 years. But over time, we had less and less of Dimitri. He decided to be, spend more of his time on the global stage outside of America. And it was my turn to be grumpy. I really wanted him to counsel us, to guide us, to correct us, to challenge us. And I think he knew something that none of us in the advocacy world wanted to confront, which is that just maybe, at least until now, America doesn't have a political system that is capable of modernizing its immigration system in a way that's intelligent. But fortunately for me, Dimitri kept inviting me to international gatherings and conferences, and I always said yes. And it was really just a marvel to watch Dimitri in action as Trevor was talking about it, you know, commanding every stage, dominating every meeting, orchestrating uh, who was coming together and how we might work together going forward. It was truly a stunning development to watch him blossom the way he did on the world stage. And, I know he's been called a giant in this field. He not only has been, he forever will be. But for me, uh, Dimitri is the definition of a great leader. You know, they say the great leaders don't produce more followers, they produce more leaders. And that's all of us. So Dimitri, rest in peace, be patient, be patient with us, you, you left awfully big shoes to fill. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Uh, thank you everyone who spoke, all of the speakers. You really captured Dimitri in all of his different sides. I've been cycling through three different emotions as I've been listening to all of you. And I have a feeling that others here may be in the same place. One is of course, sorrow. He's no longer with us and he leaves a huge hole in our lives. And a few of us were talking about this before we came in here that we kept expecting to see him walk in. 
And I kept feeling even during this the ceremony that he might come walking in here. And I've had that feeling now for, for two months. Um, but he leaves a huge hole in our hearts. He leaves a huge hole in our lives. He leaves a huge hole in the field. He's truly a giant in the field. Although I love what Frank just said about how true leaders create leaders. He also seeded the field. He also created other leadership within the field in a way that is a true tribute and allows his legacy to carry on. It's not only what he did, it's what he helped other people to do. Secondly, there's been a lot of humor because for all of us that knew Dimitri, you couldn't be in a meeting without him without laughing at some point. Even if you were arguing over something, you would end up laughing at some point, right? I mean, the, the, that side was here. There was everything in our relationships with him that yes, they were serious and about serious things, but it was also, it was also about life. It was also about enjoying life. It was also about things that mattered deeply, but also about recognizing the small ironies that were all about us. And finally, I have to say the, the last thing is what I, I, I'm not quite sure how, what to call it, except that what I wrote down listening to everyone was a sense of privilege and a sense of joy. And I know that may seem strange at a celebration of Dimitri's life, but you know, joy for the time we had together, joy for the way he pushed us to think differently, and joy for the special relationship that, that each of us had with him. And I was thinking, this is a room filled with people that knew Dimitri in different ways, family members, colleagues, personal friends. And, and I'm guessing there's many, many more people online with us right now. Probably all of us are thinking about our particular special relationship with Dimitri. Dimitri was capable of having a different relationship with each of us and giving us time, giving us what we needed in terms of pushing our thinking, what we needed in terms of pushing our leadership, what we needed in terms of continuing our friendship with him. He was able to do that with many, many people. And this is part of his secret, not only a deep thinker, but someone who had a special way of relating to other people. So as we go forth from this room, as we go forth from the celebration of Dimitri's life, let's hold on to all those feelings, but especially let's hold on to the feeling of joy the privilege to have known him. And as Trevor said at the beginning, may Dimitri continue to be a light in our lives. Thank you for being here today.